Today's sermon comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Christ also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, my friends, it is a delight to be with you in worship. As was mentioned at the top of the service, during Lent this year, we are asking to add to your life rather than take away. Lent is a time where we often fast from something to go through a sort of suffering as we walk with Jesus the 40 days up to the cross. But this entire year has been a fast for so many of us. We have all suffered the loss of something. So I thought it more spiritually helpful to invite people to add things to their life during Lent in the form of small challenges, things that help connect us with each other and with God in a little bit more deep ways. And last week, I challenged us to write a card or a note to somebody we don't typically interact with to tell them how you see God working in their lives. This week, we're challenging you to read Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, and ask the question, maybe even journal about it, what does it mean to deny yourself? And then also, what are you struggling to let go of? Your ego, being correct, comfort, whatever it is. It's a passage that talks about denying yourself and taking up your cross. And I think that's a great Lenten discipline to think about this particular week. Also, friends at Peachtree Christian Church, if you have received your second vaccination and um, had that done already, would you please email us at the church office, specifically email Reverend D. Stone, dstone at peachtree.org, to let us know the date of your second vaccine. We want to collect this information for a whole host of reasons, uh, not, not least of which is to try to help folks find avenues to vaccination, but also for our future plans. For now, would you join your heart with mine in prayer? Creator God, we are thankful for the gift of life. We acknowledge that we haven't always been so faithful with that great gift. There are times that we've been unwise, wayward, and sinful. Yet it is the shape and confession of our shared faith that even though we walked away from you, you sent your son Christ to reconcile us unto yourself, and we are grateful. And we believe that Christ is at work in our hearts, cultivating in us a desire for your kingdom ways. Similarly, we believe and confess together that you sent your Holy Spirit to be our guide, our counselor, our friend. Your Spirit builds us up into a community of care. And we're grateful for the help. 
We appeal now to that help. We ask for your spirit to be with us. In this room and in every room, my voice can be heard. For you and I know that without you, I can do nothing. Help us see these words from 1 Peter afresh, that they may transform our heart in some measure today, and that we leave this worship time together renewed. It is in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. The words that we say matter. Your mamas have been trying to teach you that your whole life long. One evening, a mother was preparing Salisbury steak for dinner. The kids come running into the kitchen. The aroma smelled good, but the sight of the Salisbury steak was off-putting to the eldest child. He looked into the pan and said, "Ooh, what is that slimy-looking stuff? As insulting as mom must have felt, she kept her cool. She then served up the meal on the kids' plates, Salisbury steak here, mashed potatoes here, and canned green beans over here. You, you know the kind, the kind that are already mushy before you open the can. The eldest child turned up his nose at the plate. He's got texture issues. I get that. He grumbled some more insulting thoughts about what his mother had made. And she said, you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. And then she said, if you don't want to eat it, that's fine. This is dinner. There's nothing else. You can just go to bed hungry. And then the eldest son said, that's not fair. I'm starving. And you know how mom responded even before I tell you, don't you? She said, child, you don't know a thing about starving. You don't know what it was like when I was a kid, and then you don't know what it was like living in this part of the world and so on. You don't know nothing about what it means to starve. Don't say that word. The word I'm interested in today is suffering. For St. Peter, the Christians who were dispersed all about the Roman Empire, to whom he's writing, they, they found themselves suffering often for their acts of goodwill and for their faith in Jesus Christ. Reading this text today has been a bit of an edifica edification for me because it calls me, it's called me to be mindful of how I say that I'm suffering during this pandemic. I still get food. I have several, not just one, several streaming television services. Unlike many people in Texas, friends and colleagues alike, I have heat. And in the summertime, I proved that I had air conditioning. If I don't want to go to the grocery store, but let's face it, any chance I get, I go just to get out of the house. I can have groceries delivered. And if I don't want what's in the pantry, I can just order a pizza. I don't know suffering. I know our lives and my life has been inconvenienced, but at least I haven't been harmed for my faith. Not like the audience of this letter. 
Yet, I'm also reminded that to the extent that we suffer, we are in good company. Christ also suffered, so says St. Peter. For what did Christ suffer? It tells us in this text that Christ suffered once and for all that we may be brought to God. The language here is all-inclusive, once and for all. So much so that whenever I find myself in those strange conversations that you have with friends when you're sitting around a fire in the backyard and they start asking, do you believe if there are extraterrestrials in the universe that are intelligent? What would happen if we discovered there were aliens and they, and they, they had different beliefs? Or did, did Jesus die for them? And I say always, well, Peter reminds us, Jesus' death was once for all. There is something totalizing about this once for all that we may be brought to God. Another way of putting it is that Christ healed the wounds of all creation with his very life. The suffering and the gift of his life heals what is broken about not just earth but the cosmos. He laid down his life for the sake of the world. Then St. Peter confuses us, to be frank. He talks about this descent into a prison. Jesus had descended into prison to proclaim his healing good news to those who have been in prison there. What is all that about, do you think? Let me suggest for a moment that there are many ways that people have interpreted this descent language throughout the history of the church. I'm going to offer you three of them. We're not going to conclude on any one of them because I don't know that we can. The first offering is very, very old. It's called the harrowing of hell. It's the reason why in one of our ancient creeds it says that Jesus descended into hell. It was not actually, that phrase was not in the first draft of the creed, I assure you. It was in a later edition, yet Yet it's there. And sometimes when you repeat that creed, I notice Christians get to that bit and they kind of muse over what that must mean. Somehow we know that Jesus suffered. He was on the cross. He was put into the tomb. And then for some days before the resurrection, it is assumed that he harrowed hell, that, that he descended there. For, for what purpose? Well, for bringing the good news and righteousness to all those who were righteous before he came. That is to say, those souls that were righteous in some way, but never got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ because they lived before Jesus Christ, they're there in the grave, and now they get to hear the great good news of Jesus. It's kind of like a retroactive blessing. There was once a woman who was a great worker in a company. And in her department, there was a shakeup, and some people left, and some people were fired. And she found herself doing what so many people do in this situation, doing more work than her job description required. She did the job of two men. And because she doesn't like to make waves, she just kept doing it for some time. She was efficient. She was good. She kept working. A new boss was hired, a new manager of the area, and he came in to do a bit of a, a study over, over his area, a bit of a... Um, a deep dive into the numbers. After his little audit of the area, he noticed that 
this gal was actually doing the job of two. And so he called her into his office one day, and he said, I noticed that you've been doing the job of two people. And she says, well, well yes, it's just what needed to be done. And he congratulated her and thanked her, and she felt somewhat vindicated. And then he said, I'm going to give you a raise. And then she felt a little happier, but then he said, but your raise isn't starting today. We're going to pay you retroactively to when you took over the two other positions. It's kind of a retroactive blessing for those who are righteous before they could even hear the message of Jesus. Well, the second way people have interpreted this that I've noticed is that the Spirit of Christ was present in the time of Noah. I don't know if you noticed that part right after. It talked about Jesus descending into the prison to speak to the spirits who, who, were, who were unfaithful or disobedient. And then it very quickly moves to discussions of the time of Noah. And for all you students of Genesis and, and, and the Old Testament, remember that in the time of Noah, there wasn't a lot of faithfulness. There wasn't a lot of righteousness. It was really whittled down to this little family. And Noah preached and preached and preached and preached and preached for years to disobedient people, and they didn't listen. Some interpreters have thought this means that in some spiritual way, Jesus was, the spirit of Jesus was with Noah preaching in those days, and then later this language about baptism and the ark becomes kind of a typology that flows out of it. I don't know, but it's one that people held to. The last one, and perhaps one of the most common ways of understanding Jesus' descent into prison, comes from the tradition of the book of Enoch and Genesis chapter 6-2. The book of Enoch we don't actually have today, but by the time of 1 Peter's writing, they would have known its story and tradition well. You might remember from Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, this really far out bit of the Bible. It says the sons of God descended to the earth and began to take, take women, human women, as wives. And then there's language, some people talk about Nephilim, and there's language of giants, and it, it gets really confusing. And then Genesis doesn't clear it up at all. But there's this book where it's talked about a lot, and these sons of God are likened to angels who have descended and come down and done what they shouldn't have. And really, maybe what's happening here is that Jesus descends to where they are to preach to them the truth and the way. There are so many interpretive challenges here. I fear that knowing full certainty what this means is a bit beyond our grasp. What I can say, if Jesus descends even into the grave, even into the prison, and proclaims the gospel, what I can say is there is not one corner of the cosmos that remains unaffected by the good news of Christ. Not one portion of heaven or hell, not one prison or operating room, not one house, not one continent, not one country. The gospel remains in the world and impacts everything in the world, and wherever its light shines, Life is changed. Christ has come to lift up a broken cosmos. Not all suffering, therefore, is bad. Christ suffered to heal, 
to make what was broken whole, to clean the dirty, to mend the broken heart. And similarly, the church, the body of Christ, who we're supposed to be, we're called to be a people who are willing to lay down their lives for the good of the world. Let me say that again. The church is the group of people that are called by God to lay down their lives for the good of the world. Like our leader, teacher, and Savior Christ. And I think this means that there's been a crisis of character in the contemporary church because most language over COVID and how we behave has to do with what my rights are versus thinking this. What opportunity here and now, given our current problems, do I have to lay something down for the good and health of others? But you know this principle well. You already know it in your bones, friends. Laying your life down for others is all around your life. Parents sacrifice for their children. Friends lift up the burden of other friends and their burdens. Teachers forego larger salaries in order to educate. And doctors forego a lot of free time and a lot of healthy time in order to heal. We see places all around us where giving one's life and laying it down to lift up the other is right in front of us. It might just be the way the world was built. I was inspired recently by a documentary on one of the leading streaming services. The documentary is called My Octopus Teacher. There's a documentarian who makes it, and he talks about how he had gone through some trouble in his life. He clearly had a broken heart. He doesn't say what it was. But he, he lives in South Africa, and he, he likes to scuba dive, and he likes to snorkel. And he found himself so broken and so discombobulated from his purpose that he couldn't even do the thing that he loves, which is to, to make documentaries and, and film and to uh, bring good stories to the world. One day, kind of out of a sense of longing and pain, he decided to go out to the beach where near he lives and, and just walk out and snorkel. And right out there, not far from his house, he found a common octopus, a small common octopus. And they had an encounter. It's like an encounter that's once in a lifetime, as far as I can tell. The way that this animal creature engaged this human creature was remarkable. And it showed such intellect. The thing is, is I'll never eat an octopus again after seeing the intellect in this documentary. But the man thought to himself as he's down there, having this experience and feeling a lightness of being, he thought, what if I did this every day? And so every day for about a year, he, he would wade out into the same water with cameras and he would swim and he encountered every day the same octopus. And over time, you see the octopus start to recognize this man. And, and over time, not just recognize, but to come to have uh, compassion and care or love. I can't tell you how an octopus thinks, but I can tell you what I'd see. There was an excitement when he would be there and they would 
and explore the world together. And at one point, they even hug each other. I know, strange. And it, and it might even be off-putting if you find an octopus's suckers to be off-putting. But, but watch it. It is astronomically, mind-blowingly beautiful. There's a tenderness. And he walks the entire life cycle of this octopus becoming its friend, finding healing in it. Then there's the point where it's time for this octopus to give life. And the very act of giving life for this octopus means that this one is going to die. And he tries to hold himself back from stopping things to happening to the octopus, but he knows it's not his business to get involved in the nature where they are. He documents as she gives life to all these hundreds and perhaps thousands of tiny miniature little octopuses, and her body grows weak. And then she gives her own body up as a sacrifice to be eaten by the predators so that her young can live. This is the truth of the world, its rhythms. Deep below anything you can see is a vibration that gives the world its purpose and being. Sacrificial love is the foundation of it all, which is perhaps why Jesus' self-giving sacrifice can make so much sense and it can truly heal our broken worlds. Bless you.